I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking at chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Please pray with me. Lord, as we look at your perfect word this morning, we don't want to just learn from it. We want to be transformed by it. Lord, we we want hearts that are conformed to the affections of this woman. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonder of the forgiveness that you offer us. That whether here as an unbeliever, inquiring, searching, or as believers, Lord, that uh, through your word, our eyes would be opened even more to understand your glory, your preciousness so that we would all leave here 
worshiping you as you deserve. And so we ask not simply for grace to understand, but again, grace to be transformed. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the emphases of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke in his writings, is, is the um, universal author of the Gospel. That is, that the Gospel is given for all people indiscriminate of their identity. The, the good news of the kingdom is available for people of every gender. Well, there's only two genders, let me be clear about that. All ages. Jews and Gentiles. Prostitutes and Pharisees. And in Luke 5, we're told that Jesus had already been given, a, received a reputation for being a man who is willing to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. But here in chapter 7, he also willingly accepts an invitation to dine with a religious leader. And this story, in fact, makes it clear that Jesus accepted this invitation because he wanted to reach this Pharisee with the gospel. His name was Simon. And you'll notice that Simon is the focus of this passage. The the sinful woman stands out due to her ostentatious acts. But you'll notice she's not even named by Luke. Her actions are exemplary. But you also notice that Jesus points out the actions in order to teach Simon something. Simon is the focus of this passage. Jesus is trying to reach Simon the Pharisee. And so it is truly remarkable to see Jesus' compassion and mercy upon this sinful woman. But we also can't miss that Jesus' Jesus' compassion and mercy is also remarkably expressed to Simon. Simon's the primary focus of this narrative. And the narrative really just has two simple parts. It begins with Simon's assessment of Jesus in verses 36 to 40. And then that turns with Jesus' assessment of Simon in 41 to 50. So let's begin with verse 36. With an invitation That Simon gives to Jesus. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now we're not told the motivations of the Pharisee for why he invited Jesus. It could be that he saw Jesus as a bit of a threat. So he wanted to get to know him better to figure out how great a threat he actually was. It could also be that. Uh, He was trying to set Jesus up somehow. The Pharisees frequently did this. And that in observing Jesus, he might find something that he could bring an accusation against him. It's also possible that he was fascinated by what Jesus had taught. And he wanted to learn more. Whatever his motivation in inviting Jesus to his house for dinner, Simon was somewhat disrespectful. Because he failed to offer some of the basic gestures of hospitality. The text makes clear that he didn't offer him a greeting or wash his hands and feet. And it was customary for a host to honor 
a guest. Especially if that guest was a well-known teacher or rabbi. The Jews held rabbis in very high esteem. Just like we would when we, when we have guest preachers or guest missionaries come in, we try to do our best to honor them because of their work. Well, the Jews did that as well. And, but Simon did not do what would have been expected. There was no gracious greeting with a bow or a kiss. He wasn't given an opportunity to wash his hands and feet. We do know that at least he was provided food because Jesus was at the table eating. But Simon more or less failed to do what you would expect of just even a normal guest. And then after noting the context in verse 36, the narrative immediately introduces this sinful woman. And she serves as a, as a sort of foil to Simon to expose Simon's heart. Because she goes above and beyond what would have been standard kind of expose Simon's failure. And this goes to show, again, that our actions expose really what's going on in our heart. We can declare with our mouths how much we love Jesus, talk about all the things we do for Jesus, but our actions... What we do, especially when we're not being observed. Expose the depths of our hearts. As Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruits. Let's look next at the response of the sinful woman. Verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, began to wet, her, wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And, and again, as I mentioned, this woman's unnamed. All we're told about her is that she was a woman of the city, which probably means that she was a prostitute. And possibly she was one of the women who was there when... Jesus was at Matthew's house. In Luke chapter 5, it says this, The Pharisees and the experts in the law complained to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so it's quite possible that this woman was there when she heard Jesus' free offer of forgiveness for any who would repent from their sins and believe in Him. And I say that because the the reason she shows up is because she has received this free offer of forgiveness. That's why she's there. That becomes clear in the text. That's why she shows such ostentatious displays of gratitude and honor towards Christ. Notice she, she begins by pouring an alabaster flask of ointment on his feet. This would have been expensive, perfumed oil. And so she honors Christ by, by giving really a large, making a large financial sacrifice just to honor him because of the offer of forgiveness. Secondly, she shows her affection with profuse tears and weeping. And we hear the word weeping, don't think Hollywood weeping. 
but, but think red eyes and snot, profuse weeping from the heart. She's overcome with emotion. It's not, it's not a pretty picture, but it's absolutely beautiful. People don't weep like this for no reason. She also shows her reverence for Christ by wiping his dirty feet with her hair and kissing them. Remarkably, the, the word feet occurs seven times in this passage. It's a, it's a strong emphasis. In fact, it occurs more in this passage than in any other place in Scripture except one. It occurs seven times here. It occurs eight times in the passage uh, in John chapter 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And I believe there's a connection there. If Jesus' willingness to wash the disciples' feet was so shocking... Consider what this woman is doing. And keep, keep in mind that a woman's hair at that time was a mark of her dignity. And a man's feet was a mark of indignity. Just consider what Paul says about a woman's hair in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Why she should wear a head covering. In that culture, that was the most precious aspect of a woman. And this woman's actions demonstrate that the lowest member of Jesus' body was far more precious than the lowest member of her own. The lowest member of Jesus' body was far more precious to her than any aspect of herself. That's what she's displaying because she understands what Jesus has done for her. And her actions remind me of a recent incident in our church. A few weeks ago, an unwatched child chose to defecate in one of the urinals in the men's room. And upon hearing this, one of the ladies in our church immediately responded by entering the men's room and removed the forward object and placed it in its proper location. And it wasn't her child. It it wasn't her job. She did it because she loved the parents who were part of our church. And she gladly wanted to serve them despite the indignity of the task. And she also loved the reputation of our church. If it wasn't dealt with, then that would really look bad upon us in the eyes of our landlords. And it was a private act and it was driven by just genuine love and humility. But this woman's act in Luke 7 was public. She was publicly humiliating herself because she was so compelled to show her gratitude and affection for Christ. Consider this on top of the fact that she already had a reputation, a well-known reputation for being a woman of the city. And in contrast, this woman's response to Christ with Simon the Pharisee's response in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. So while this woman's honoring Christ, Simon is judging Christ. And he's dead wrong in his judgment. See, Simon assumes Jesus is a fraud. He's not a real prophet. And why does he make this judgment? Why is this the conclusion that he comes to about Jesus? Note his description of the woman. For she is a sinner. What is Simon missing? The implication is she's not like me. She's a sinner. She's not like me. See, Simon dismisses Jesus because he assumes a truly righteous person would not allow himself to be touched by a sinner. So Simon, you'll notice, Simon actually believes he is more righteous than Jesus. He fails to judge Christ rightly and honor Christ duly because he assumes he's more righteous than Christ. It's Simon's self-righteousness that's preventing him from seeing the true value of Christ. It's his self-righteousness, his pride that's getting in his way. Seeing what this woman saw. She loved Jesus with such intensity because she saw her need for him. Simon has no affection because he sees no need. The greatest hindrance to a person's love for God is their own love of self. The greatest hindrance to a person's love for Christ is their pride. Last week, some of the church leaders stayed in a rental home while attending Shepherd's Conference. And when I was showering, I noticed the, the water in the shower wasn't draining. It was actually all the way up to my ankles. And I discovered that the problem was that there was a hair clog in the drain. So after I removed the hair clog, the, the water flowed freely. Likewise, the reason this woman's affections flowed so freely for Christ and Simon's were totally clogged was due to an absence of pride. Pride was clogging Simon's heart, but this woman, she was ready to receive the forgiveness she knew she needed. And it's pride that clogs our own affections. If you examine your heart and you wonder, why is it that I don't love Christ like so many other people? Well, consider what you do love. Simon is a self-righteous, self-worshipper. And the point of this text is that Jesus came to save self-righteous, self-worshippers. That's the point of the text. Not just tax collectors and prostitutes, but religious and self-righteous prudes also. They all need Christ. That's why Jesus accepted the invitation. Christ came to Simon because he wants Simon to recognize Simon too needs him. 
But first, Simon needs to recognize that he needs him. And it's on account of his mercy and love that Jesus speaks to him in verse 40. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And we need to see Jesus' compassion as well as the, the, hum, the, the, the funny irony in these words. Remember, again, that Simon dismissed Jesus, that he couldn't be a prophet because he, he allowed this woman to touch him. This man can't be a prophet, he said. Then Jesus, it says, answers him. Simon didn't say that out loud. Jesus is showing Simon, I know your thoughts. I am a prophet. But he doesn't say this just because he wants Simon to know that he's a prophet. He wants to expose Simon's pride. He wants Simon to see his pride so that he too might enjoy the forgiveness that this woman also has already received. That she is enjoying, that she's delighting in. He wants Simon to have the same joy. And this brings us to then Jesus' assessment of Simon in verse 41. And so in order to reach Simon's heart, Jesus tells a simple story. It only has two sentences, and it has a simple point. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Right, the, the equivalent amounts today would be something like debts of $10,000 and debts of $100,000. Right? If somebody were to offer to, to pay off your mortgage or to pay off your car, which one would you appreciate more? Simple, simple point. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. Now, notice carefully Jesus' response in verse 43. You have judged rightly. Jesus being very purposeful with his words. Because where Simon failed to judge rightly in regard to this woman, in regard to Christ, he's able to see clearly in regard to this question of debt. Right? Simon's able to see the difference between a large monetary debt being absolved, but he's not able to see his own spiritual debt. And therefore, he sees no need for it to be absolved. Right? His self-righteousness is preventing him from thinking logically in regard to his debt of sin to God. In fact, again, he's blind to his sin of debt to God. He thinks he's fine. When in fact, he's totally unaware that he's in much graver eternal danger than this woman whom he so despises. And that's why Jesus brings this up. In his self-righteous pride, Simon is blind to the immensity of his debt. He thinks God owes him something. He thinks God should appreciate him. That God should delight in him for all the great things that he's done, for all the sacrifices that he's made, for all the people that he's taught. God should honor him. 
And so he despises the, the woman who is honoring God in the most explicit way possible. With tears of joy. Some of you might know that Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones, the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, didn't get saved until years of, of sitting under her husband's preaching. She said this, I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning and I used to feel, well, if this, Christian, if this is Christianity, I really do not know anything about it. On Sunday night, I used to pray that somebody would be converted. I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. I remember how I used to rejoice to see drunkards become Christians and envy them with all my heart because here they were full of joy and free. And here I was in such a different condition. And she had assumed that she was a believer for years. And so did everybody else. So did her husband. Until she finally recognized That although she was righteous outwardly, in her heart she was still so full of pride. And that she had never truly been born again. She didn't realize that it was her pride that was clogging her affections for Christ. She admired what these drunkards came to understand and love about Christ. But she didn't realize it was her pride that was keeping her from seeing Christ as precious. And I wonder if maybe you too are in the same position. You may have attended church faithfully for years. And yet if you were just honest with yourself, you'd acknowledge that you you still love yourself more than even you love Christ. That if somebody were to look at your time, to look about, look at what you talk about. But at the end of the day, what you really want is you want to be liked more than you want Christ to be known. Well, speaking of love for Christ, look at verse 44. Christ gives this lesson of love. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. Verse 47 is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture because it gets to the heart of true worship. The people who love Christ the most are the people who recognize they need him the most. 
They recognize they got nothing to offer. They really don't have anything that anybody should be impressed with. If people really knew them, they would be ashamed. And that's why they just want people to know Christ. Do you, like Simon, see Christ as somebody that you're just simply supposed to learn about and to serve? Or is Christ more precious to you than anything? Or do you see Jesus as just, you know what, I'm going to go to church today because that's what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and I'm going to go to Sunday school and I'm going to go to community group because that's what Christians do. Or can you not wait to open your Bible and to read of this great Savior's love? Is Christ just something to learn about and serve? Or is He your treasure? So precious to you that you're compelled to express your devotion to Him, even if it means giving up what is most precious to you. I mean, can you say in your heart, if Christ were to ask anything of me to honor Him, I would give it now without thinking. I would willingly, if the opportunity availed itself, be like this sinful woman. Because He means so much to me. Are you just an evaluator of Christ or are you a lover of Christ? Last week, Paul Washer preached a message at Grace Community Church. And he said this. When we look through church history, we see extraordinary men and extraordinary women of devotion and courage. The willingness to give absolutely everything. What makes them different? Why are they so strange? Why do they appear as an anomaly? What's the reason? Were they born a, a better stock than us? Absolutely not. They were born of Adam. Were they born again with a better spirit? No. God does not show partiality with his children. Then what is the difference? Here's the difference. If you look at them, and you see courage, and you see passion, and you see discipline, it's only because they know more of God, they know more of Christ, they know more of the payment than the average believer. And that came to them because they sought it. They sought it in the Scriptures. They sought it in prayer. They wanted to know. And you see, the weakest man in the world can become strong. The most useless servant can become extraordinary. But it's only to the degree that they know their God. And principally, they know their God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is absolutely everything. And Washer's point is, you want to know what, what stirs people up to love Christ like this? They know Christ. And they know themselves. So here's a fair question for assessment. Just think about the people in your life. The people you know, the people who know you, church members, co-workers, family members, neighbors, friends. 
Do you want those people to appreciate and admire you more? Or do you want them to appreciate and admire Christ more? When you came here this morning, were you hoping that people would appreciate you? Or were you praying, God, open their eyes to love you more? At work, do you want them to see how good you work, how disciplined? Do you want them to envy you because of your position? Because of your accolades? Or do you want those people to know Christ? What do you talk about? And don't be fooled here. Because there's, there's a lot of Christians that, talk, that like to talk about all the things they do for Christ in ministry. Right? I've, I've shared the gospel. I've taught this class. I've gone on this mission for a trip. And they can go on and on about all the great things that they've done for Christ, but it's not about Christ. They want you to be impressed with them. Do you want people to admire you or Jesus? As John the Baptist said, he must increase and we must decrease. The greatest hindrance to our love for Christ, again, it's our own self. If you would increase in your love for Christ, you need to study him. You need to know him. You need to follow him. But most of all, you need to learn to die to yourself. As Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, right, the very beginning of following him starts here. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, die to himself, be willing to die to his ambitions, to admiration, to love, be willing to give up everything for Christ. If you have not come to that point yet in your life where all things are considered as loss, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't let your pride, don't let your love for this world keep you from coming to Him. Don't be like Simon. Be like this woman. Know what she knows. John Newton once wrote to a young pastor. He said, you have one hard lesson to learn. That is the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but it's needful that you should know more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus into his salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's absolutely true. Similarly, one of his friends, Charles Simeon, another famous pastor, after he had been a Christian 40 years, he wrote this. There are but two objects that I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've always thought that they should be viewed together. Just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel when he put them on the head of the scapegoat, the disease did not keep him from applying the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. And this is why Jesus says to the woman in verse 48, 
Your sins are forgiven. She recognized her need. She recognized her need for forgiveness. And so those at table who were with him began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Remarkably, this passage ends with Christ giving this woman assurance of forgiveness. And I say that's remarkable. Not that he offers forgiveness, but she already knew that. That's why she's there. That's why she's crying. That's why she's let her hair down and humiliated herself in public. It's because she knows of the free offer of forgiveness. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. Christ said that. So why does he offer this assurance? Well, it could just be because, like her, we all love to be reminded that our sins are forgiven. We can't hear that enough. We love Romans 8, 1 for a reason. But I think this assurance is offered for the benefit of Simon. Simon needs to hear it. He needs to see what he's missing out on. See, if Simon recognized that he's in as much need of forgiveness on account of his self-righteousness and his pride, maybe he had never committed sexual immorality. Maybe he had never even committed lust. But he was one arrogant man. Brothers and sisters, we all need Christ. Pastors and pedophiles need the same cleansing grace. Christ is no respecter of persons. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the, full, the glory of God. And therefore, all of our righteous deeds, all of them, they're just like filthy rags. Christ is not impressed by our righteousness. Every person needs atonement regardless of the amount or the nature of their sins. We all need the same cleansing grace. And so I have to ask once again, have you experienced, and I use that word very particularly, have you experienced that saving grace? Or is it just an idea? Is it just a doctrine that you've been told to believe? Or have you experienced the transformation of your heart where you go from being a lover of self, self-seeking, self-adoring, self-exalting, To being a person who wants to give everything away, if necessary, so that the world might know their Savior. That the world might know what you've experienced. That they might enjoy what you enjoy. That they might love what you love. That that the most important thing to you is that they would experience grace because you've experienced it. It's touched your heart. Have you been transformed? Do you love Christ because He's forgiven of you? Or do you simply serve Him because that's what's expected of you? 
Any who put their faith in Christ can receive forgiveness. This is the point of the passage. And all who put their faith in Christ will receive full forgiveness. A few centuries ago, a group of American ministers went on a trip to hear the greatest preachers in England. Think of it as like a mini shepherds conference. They first attended City Temple where Dr. Joseph Parker preached. And the sermon was scriptural. It was rich. The congregation hung upon his words. And the Americans came away from the sermon saying, what an amazing preacher Dr. Parker is. In the evening, they went to hear Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But when Spurgeon began, they forgot all about the magnificent building that they were in. They forgot about the immense congregation, Spurgeon's magnificent voice. They even overlooked their intention to compare the one preacher with the other. And when the service was over, they found themselves saying, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. In your life and words, do people see your value or do they see how much you value Christ? Do you love Christ more or less than this woman? Consider her example. Even today, none of us are impressed by her. As much as by her love for Christ. She did not come to this feast in order to make a spectacle so that all people would admire her and be impressed by her. Get her signature. She came to that feast for one reason alone. She wanted to show the world that she knew a wonderful, merciful Savior. Heavenly Father, make us a church that wants the world to know that we have a wonderful, merciful Savior. And Lord, we know in our flesh we can't transform ourselves. We need You to do a work within us. And so we ask for great, sovereign grace. We ask for spiritual, divine power because we know we don't have it in us. And so we ask you, the only one who can give it to us, transform our hearts. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, do that miracle. Open their eyes. Turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh that they would love you. That they would experience the joy of salvation. And for us who have been born again and yet still prone to pride. Continue to work your miraculous grace in us that we too would love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.